In your 24th instalment of the Rugby Paper podcast, we take a look at Ireland's prospects of a potential World Cup win in France next year. Joining me, Chris, and Brendan to do this, we welcome a player who is every bit as exuberant off the pitch as he was on it. In the name of former Ireland fly half Mick Quinn. I'm going to sound like a broken record, but Chris and Brendan, I'm welcoming the two of you yet again. Great to have you with me. And we are with former Ireland fly half Mick Quinn. How are you doing, Mick? I'm very good, thank you. Really good to be on. Great. Uh, great. You guys are there in the mainland? Yeah, I was going to say, where exactly? I presume you're in Ireland. Where in Ireland are you right now? I'm in Dublin, the metropolis of all action in this country. And it's probably been a chaotic few weeks during the Ireland All Black series. It has, yeah. It's been pretty interesting, actually, because, uh, you know, those of us who played against the All Blacks uh, never had the situation where we were coming out of the place either alive or uh, with the wind. (laughs) Boys have managed to do both. So it's been a pretty exciting time. Uh, It's been a great, great performance by the boys. I suppose with all the celebrations back in Dublin, the people in Dublin may be worse for wear than the people who toured New Zealand, which probably never, ever happened. Well, it, it, it was pretty exciting. And, and uh, just the general performance of the guys and, and the type of rugby they're playing, uh, a real uh, shot in the arm for the game here. Though, Mick, uh, I, don't, I don't want to be controversial, Mick, here, but does it strike you that Ireland's fortunes are on an upward trajectory ever since Boris Johnson put a trade border in the Irish Sea? Well, I think that's probably one of the good things that he <laughs> Unfortunately, he didn't go on one of those ships himself and get, get because um, you know it's 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 very unusual uh, when when you turn around and say that the leadership in England England you know it's it's run by an asshole, but uh, it's certainly chastening to watch him go at the end of the day because I mean if he was in a school here you would you would put him down as the, as the class idiot you know <laughs> um, well I'm glad I mentioned that well, <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean you, you just pine for the day when somebody sensible in politics comes to the fore either in America or here and uh, it's it's just delusional at the moment around the world, just watching the way things are going, you know? Yeah, yeah. we'll talk about (laughs) not Boris Johnson-related rugby things with Ireland in a little bit. Mick, first of all, tell me, what are you doing nowadays? I'm retired. I I, I, uh, had my own uh, property management company and uh, I ran the IRFU Charitable Trust for some years before I retired and um, we built up quite a good sum or our parallel players. So um, I've retired from all of that now. So I, I just sort of uh, delve in, uh, help out a friend with his company now who's in pharmaceuticals. And I, I watch my children come through and they're all being quite successful in business. So I'm sort of uh, trying to help them as much as I can. Uh, but I do, I do enjoy being involved just in family stuff now, really. Is that what retirement looks like then? Primarily family involvement. It, yes, it's it's the grandchildren. It's all of that, and I have great fun with my grandkids. Uh, really enjoying all of that, and uh, I'm still heavily involved in the rugby with Lansdowne. Uh, Lansdowne is my club, and um, we're moving into our 150th anniversary this year. So it's a big year for our club. So uh, I'm going to be heavily involved in that. Yeah, and that ties, I suppose 
kind of nicely into our first discussion for today, which is a slightly more serious discussion, which is that, um, well, particularly relevant was our discussion around dementia with Alistair Hignall last week. A band of around 185 players are suing rugby union's governing bodies for negligence, claiming that the, playing the sport has caused brain damage. Brendan, tell us a little bit more about how serious this is for the game. It's, it's a kind of milestone moment, I suspect, but it's, it's going to be a very difficult one. I think you only have to look around and you can see with the evidence of your own eyes that something is going on in terms of concussive injuries. Uh, and it's this accumulation of small concussions is what the experts seem to think is the main problem. And it can give you this CTE and premature senile dementia. And this is the main body of what people are looking at. Um, so that, that obviously it makes sense for all the rugby union and some rugby league players are, are putting this together and working with one group of lawyers. Now, that's that's the sort of where we are at. It's going to get complicated. And I think it's going to be a long term thing because proving to the satisfaction of a court of law that, that there is this direct link is, first of all, going to be challenging. And the thing that occurred to me is if you play rugby, you're going to get lots of injuries. And, you know, I was looking at this super slow motion we get these days. If you take a tackle, a, a completely legal tackle below the waist, even in the torso, you see somebody's head rock back. You see that ricochet, that whiplash. Now, that is what is causing, that is one of the causes of concussion. It's not always the headshots or the big smashing into the, the neck and the head. And you get, you know, scores of those in a game as, as a natural course. Also, you can take a legal tackle round the legs and you go down onto the ground, hard ground. And again, that's where you get those, those concussions. So how they're going to differentiate between what is entirely, well, what has hitherto been entirely acceptable within any game of rugby in any era, under any sets of laws, physical contact, how you separate those from the clear issue of headshots, high tackles, head on head, which obviously clearly cannot be good over a long term. So I, I remain hopeful, but... It's going to be a long process and they're going to have to devise their criteria here. And just another thing that occurs to me, even within somebody's career, you know, if you've got a 15 year professional who's picking up, you know, these small cumulative injuries, but is everybody culpable or not? You know, I understand England under Woodford, for example, even 20 years ago, were only doing seven or eight minutes contact a week. But were these players doing the same at club level or much more? I suspect much more. So you're going to have to differentiate between where that, that the largest volume of concussive knocks was picked up. So big stuff. I mean, it's very important, but I don't think there's going to be any resolution anytime soon. I think this is the, the, first, the first step to a long process. What's slightly bizarre about it for me is obviously without knowing that who the bulk of these 185 players are, players like Steve Thompson have become sort of the, the spearheads of it. And obviously he played... 15 years ago now and you'd say that certainly the impact of these shots have got even higher than that in that time and also one of the biggest allegations raised by the players is the schedules that these players are now under in terms of the number of matches they're having to do each year now with an extra european tournament and summer tests that schedule has got even more intense so if this, this year i understand is where they're going to really aim their fire the lawyers you know the escalation of games all the promises of reducing player time but actually it's no better than it ever was and as you say the impacts are bigger so i mean i think this is where the lawyers are going to really drill down and try and make the case against the the, the game generally for organizing too many competitions too many 
elite matches. And that's that's something concrete that those lawyers fighting for the players, I think, can really have a go at. Chris, what comes from this, do you think? I agree absolutely 100% with um, the issues that Brendan has outlined. I, I think it's massively serious on a number of on a number of levels. There are some indefinables here, aren't there? There are some abstractions. To what extent do you believe that the game is inherently more dangerous now than it was when Mick was playing or was I, or I was playing at my much more modest level uh, in terms of players' dynamism, fitness, improvements in physical conditioning, which leads to bigger impacts, et cetera, et cetera. To what extent do you put it down to changes in tackle technique and defensive structures? To what extent do you talk about, as Brendan has just mentioned, the high volume of games? Well, the volume of games, I mean, I'm only guessing with Mick here, um, but he would have played a lot more often than some of these players because he probably would have played Saturday, Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday. When I was playing, we would play twice in two days. Um, we, you know, cup matches were on a Sunday at my level. So I'm not, I'm not sure that anything quite fits together in the way that a court case of this stature and this significance would demand. I think World Rugby have to, and, and the other, uh, and the Rugby Football Union um, and whatever other bodies are involved in the front line of this legal dispute are going to have to tread extremely carefully because it is not a good look for any sporting organisation to appear to be playing fast and loose or appear to be trying to be evasive on these kinds of issues. You can't turn around to Steve Thompson and Ryan Jones and lots of players who are far less celebrated than them and say, well, we're sorry, lads, but nothing to do with us, Gov. That's really difficult. So they're going to have to be incredibly sensitive in the way they mount their defence. I think it will be a long case. I think, as Brendan says, to get a very clear-cut decision will be the devil's own work. In fact, it may be that... <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 quietly, the rugby administrators are just praying that there's simply not enough evidence to hold them liable to the satisfaction of a court. But it's still going to drag the game slowly, backside, backwards, through the muck. And the consequences of that in terms of player participation at young level, how many parents want their kids to be involved, etc., etc., I think that's the real threat to the game. It's not the court case per se. It's everything around it. Well, the court case is important, of course, but everything around it is more important because that is an existential threat to rugby union as we understand it at the moment. I would agree. I would agree totally with you there. Uh, I think it's a, it's a, you've got to take this as being a, a professional game problem rather than an amateur game problem. Uh, and I think people are going to go into that court and they're going to say, Mr. Thompson, etc., why did you lead with your head when you were told as a schoolboy to, you know, avoid tackles, don't go into them, don't go straight into the wall, but actually... Uh, try to beat your opponent you know uh, the game changed uh, when the game went professional and and players did lead with their head and still do uh, and it, it it is a very dangerous practice of course and and you see guys falling off tackles on their head hits a, a hip 
uh, and hits the ground, we were told to tackle around the knees, you know, and, and uh, that's what I always tried to do. And uh, I, I didn't suffer um, from concussions that much, but I, I, I did consider myself to be a good tackler, you know. So, I mean, the, the, you know, defence was a very important part of my game. And, and, uh, but I always tried to make the tackle in a safe way because I was responsible for the welfare of the guy I was tackling as well as myself. And uh, obviously there are uh, players from my era who, who got dementia, et cetera. Uh, and, and for what reason, I, you know, I don't know. There could be rugby related or whatever. But uh, I do think it's, it's a professional game problem. Uh, and I do think that the way the players play the game uh, is uh, the problem regard to the leading to these injuries and I think the game has to look at the rules you know you've got to stop players tackling high you've got to stop situations where um, where these injuries can occur and uh, uh, there it is going to be uh, a protracted uh, and long uh, process this uh, but it is uh, something that players that have earned their living from the game are now taking the game on uh, to 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 uh, pay for the rest of the problem and and uh, I I think it's 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 going to be a quagmire an absolute quagmire uh, going forward because it, there will be more and more cases um, and and the rules of the game will have to be changed to to uh, soften this business of the physical aspect of the breakdown etc. One really interesting thing that you said there, Mick, was that you said when you were tackling someone, you felt responsibility for your own safety, but also the player tackling you. Now, I would say as someone who still plays now and, you know, my level is probably even more modest than yours, Chris, but in our pre-match huddles and things, our captain will be saying, look at the man opposite you and break him. And that's the sort of mindset that you're leading with. So would you say that that is a massive distinction between now and obviously i'm not a professional but we speak about the professional game and professional era versus mm. 40 years ago yes and, and i think i think uh, well i've used it always when i was coaching schoolboys that that, that i i tried to make them responsible for the way they played so they weren't doing something that was against the laws of the game you know i didn't want to see guys going in and, and putting a boot on a guy's head you know, uh, and and all because they had a, a bit of hoopla going, and they were in a cup match, and they had to be tougher than the opposition. The game is tough enough as it is. The game is hard enough as it is, and there is enough physical contact in the game, to, which makes it very interesting game. You know, uh, but but you are responsible for the guy. You do not want to uh, damage a player so much that he becomes paralyzed, for example, uh, just because you went in harder to prove what a tough guy you were you know I, I you know there is a there is a cutoff level on the physical side that has to be looked at in the game and I think that can be done through the rules and the way the structures of the game and how they how they uh, organize it you know there are lots of ways of changing rules in the game to make it more open and less physical and I think the rule makers have to look at that um, with regard to certainly at schools level and and even more into the professional game to make the game more open and less less taken up with the uh, travails of, of the rules of the game. I, I think also, Mick, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, you, you've, you've been in rugby environments that the rest of us have never been in. I mean, in terms of the inner sanctum. But 
so much of it now appears to me to be at the professional level, at the top end. And it and these views do trickle down, for sure, into pretty much every other level of rugby. But it's attitudinal. The language of the game has changed out of all recognition to me. I remember Martin Johnson extolling, when he was England coach, England manager, extolling the virtues of Courtney Laws, specifically because he tackled like a ton of bricks. There was nothing else at that point that he was lauding Courtney for. He would say, in training, you can, you know when he's on the field, you can hear him tackling. You can hear his tackling. You can hear the air go out of the guy who's just tackled. Yeah. There, there, are, there are coaches, God knows what they say to people behind closed doors. There is all sorts of anecdotal uh, stuff flying around about coaches who have, who have been desperate to keep patently concussed, badly injured players on the field or get them back on the field. And arguing with doctors who are saying, don't be mad, this man's being sick in 12 different directions. What do you think he's going to give you on the field? I need him on the field. Now, that kind of human being management seems to me to be one of the things at the very heart of this issue, because the way rugby presents, rugby insiders present their attitudes towards concussion and player welfare and the reality of what they say to people behind closed doors when the steam is rising I think may be two very different things I would agree I think I think uh, there's a lot of uh, physical brought into it uh, through word of mouth uh, rather than um, through actual training and coaching and uh, getting the players to play the game as it should be played but I mean if 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 you, if you soften the game, uh, if you soften the game physically, you add more to the skill that is within the game. Now, people say, well, there's going to be more tries because, you know, you won't be allowed to tackle high and you want, well, more tries is a good thing, you know, and, and every team it will become more talented. Uh, you, you'll see the talents of the players coming through. So the, the game itself has a responsibility to look at all of this, to, to deal with situations where, the big boy beats the small guy and, and get it back to the skill levels uh, that the, the uh, players of all sizes and shapes can perform at a very top level. And uh, the skill comes through and the winner is the guy who's more skillful. You know, so, you know, and still have the hardness within the game of a good tackle or a, or whatever. That, that's part of the game. But I, there are there are areas of the game that are far too leaning towards the big, the heavy, the strong and the dominant. Um, and, and you want to move it back a bit to the skillful, the fast, the open, the running. Uh, and, and that's the problem that the game has at the moment. They've got to try and get back to that a little bit. Long process is going to be, and I think you're absolutely right in that on the whole, we will look back on this in however many months' time and it'll represent, hopefully, a shift back to what rugby was created to be, which was an endurance, skill-based sport. I, I, would, I would have to say, Ollie. again, at my level, I was at the bottom, I played in the back row, I was at the bottom of a 1,000 rucks, 10,000 rucks, and none of them were any fun. Even the ones we won weren't exactly a great day out. But they're a lot better than the jackal position. I would not want to be in a jackal position in a month of Sundays. I think it's complete madness. You are totally exposed. You're in an unnatural position and your head and neck and tops of your shoulders are the principal target 
for some 17, years, 17 stone stallion to whack you to kingdom come. And they're doing it 20 times a game, every game. It's complete yeah. madness. No, you're absolutely right. And the jackal seems to be a sort of get out of jail free card for clocking someone in the head, doesn't it? Well, it's, it's the only, way, how do you avoid it's the only it? way of getting the ball back, isn't it? Exactly. If you take the ruck out of the game, if you take the numbers game out of the breakdown, i.e. getting there in numbers quicker than the opposition to go past the ball and therefore win it, once that's gone, and it has gone pretty much, although there are signs of counter-rucking coming back and what have you, but it's largely gone, you have to come up with a mechanism of winning the ball back or else you have rugby league. I mean, we're pretty close now. But if you can't win the ball back, you do have league, pretty much. So unless, I, I don't know what mechanism you're going to come up to because I guess the authorities don't want to see boots on bodies anymore. And I understand that. It was, as I said, it, it, it's not great fun. But if, you, if concussion is the issue of the moment, and it is the issue of the moment because everyone's about to walk into court over it, the jackal position really is a very strange way of carrying on. Good. And just Good before we on. move on, can I just flag yeah. up the other thing that's come up? Um, Ed Slater, alas, motor neuron disease, not the first rugby player to be afflicted with this awful disease in recent years. But we do make, need to make a distinction, although it is quite clear how there can be a, a link between multiple concussion industry, injuries and dementia, uh, premature dementia and CTE, which is a sort of traumatic brain injury. There is no proven link at the moment between MND and contact sport. And I can talk from a personal point of view, two close family members have, have died from the disease and two friends, none of them even played sport, let alone contact sport. The science at the moment is very clear that it's a disease, not an injury, uh, that is very closely in many ways related to MS, um, multiple sclerosis. It is uh, a failure of the automatic um, immune system most likely they don't exactly know but it would be wrong at this stage to connect MND with the big uh, weight of concussive injuries which we we're discussing at the moment 50 years time who knows they might have established some sort of link but at the moment it's not there and it needs to be separated and it's not part of it part of that debate bleak news and obviously our thoughts are, are with Ed Slater um, so sending strength to him Let's lift the tone a little bit, uh, certainly if you're an Irish fan. So, Mick, talk me through how Dublin was after, well, I presume we could, win number two was probably bigger than win number one. Actually, I don't know. What was bigger? <laughs> well, I, I think the, the number one was, was a big win. I mean, the, the, I think um, what Farrell has done here has been quite exceptional. You know, I think, I think the guy is a brilliant coach. Um, I knew this from speaking to uh, Gerald Davies uh, because he had been involved in Lions tours, et cetera, and uh, with uh, Joe Schmidt. And uh, uh, Farrell has taken all of the best parts of the Joe Schmidt era and has um, brought his own, his own mix in to the Irish scene. And uh, it's been a very happy camp. I, I think the, the guys are enjoying it. He has all of the senior players like Sexton uh, all singing from the same, same hymn sheet. And uh, they're playing a, a, an attacking, open, fast game that um, for once we're... we're where the country, uh, I had Tani Norton on to me from New Zealand, and he said, 
what are you guys doing? And I said, well, this is the first time in my lifetime that I've had people from New Zealand asking me what the Irish are doing, because we always ended up copying everybody else over the years. And here we are in a situation now where Ireland are winning quick ball, they're moving the ball at will, they're uh, fast and open and attacking, and they have a, a fulcrum in the team uh, right down the spine of the team that is very strong. You know, uh, they have a good fullback in Keenan. They have, obviously, they have Sexton. They have a good midfield. Uh, they have Gibson Park, who's, who's lightning fast at, at winning ball at the base, and they're moving it so fast that the opposition don't have time to set up the defensive situation. And uh, now th this might not run through uh, to the World Cup. I mean, uh, you know, people say, oh, we're brilliant now. We've beaten the All Blacks and we've done this and we've done that. You know, we've had success before and it didn't necessarily follow through. And the draw that we have in the World Cup does not augur well for for uh, anybody thinking that we're going to make a semi-final for the first time. You know, we, we're going to meet France or the All Blacks uh, in the quarterfinals of the World Cup, you know, and, and we've still got to get past the jocks from Scotland as well. You know, so nothing is, is going to be easy in this World Cup. So I, I wouldn't get too excited uh, about things. But the one thing that I would be excited about is that in the last 20 years uh, since O'Driscoll and the boys came on board um, it has been that Irish rugby has been extremely exciting it has been uh, uh, quite successful uh, or very successful for us but but quite successful all through and uh, although we have no rights to think that we can win a World Cup or anything like that we are certainly very competitive now we're playing the game uh, with a vibrancy and, a, and an attacking spirit that is beautiful to watch. I mean, it, it really is. And we have a team with plenty of talent. We have other countries looking at us and saying, you know, why can't we do the same? Well, they can do the same. You know, but we just seem to have a coaching structure at the moment, uh, which comes through. You know, <laughs> there's a certain English element to it. You know, because <laughs> we we have Stuart Lancaster, whom I consider to be one of the best coaches in the world, up at Leinster, and I bring. I bring my old teammates like Johnny Maloney and people like that along to watch him training the Leinster guys, and their mouths are down to their knees after watching a session that, that Stuart Lancaster takes. He is unbelievably brilliant in the way that he coaches players, that he gets the best out of them. And all of that attacking game that Leinster have played has brought through to the Irish team. And obviously, uh, Farrell, brilliant coach as he is himself, and Mike Cat and all of these guys that are dealing with that team are now bringing it through to the Irish team. And we are gaining great success from it at the moment. But, I mean, you, you're sitting over there in England and you're looking across. You guys dumped all these fellas. You know, you couldn't wait to get rid of them. And you have your own clowns in the, in the circus now over there. And you're looking back at us and saying, oh, well, we might make Farrell the next England coach. I mean, if I was Farrell, I'd tell them to where to get stuffed because they dumped him and they dumped Cat and they dumped Lancaster out the door. 
And these guys are brilliant coaches. And we have gained the benefit of that loss to English rugby. And uh, we're making hay while the sun shines. And it's just a joy to watch Ireland play rugby at the moment. It really is. And, you know, in, in Sexton, we have, with, without a doubt, the best fly half that's ever played for Ireland. Uh, he is sheer class. Uh, the Lions made a huge error not bringing him to South Africa last yeah. year. I think they would have won the series that they brought him. Uh, absolute clowns not bringing him. And they're, they're sorry for that now, but that's too late. Uh, the guy is a leader, exemplified leader, a brilliant player, great leader on the pitch, great uh, tactic. And, uh, and a brilliant player on top of it. So, I mean, you know, we have something really good going on at the moment. I'm not saying that we're going to get past the quarterfinal of the World Cup, but I can tell you something. We're playing rugby that's very pleasing to the eye and is very pleasing to the gut as well. Just to add some visual cues for our listeners at home, while Mick was mentioning the England coaches that Ireland now have, he had a, what I would describe as a a gloating glint in his eye, staring down the camera at us three Englishmen <laughs> with our uh, inverted commas clowns. <laughs> after, after, yeah. all, after all we've given you historically, Mick, we have to give you extra. That's unbelievable, <laughs> isn't it? It's a very one-sided relationship, isn't it? But I have English blood in me. My mum was in the Wrens in the Second World War and uh, she, she, uh, she was issued from Liverpool and she was in the Wrens and she used to park outside uh, Aintree Racecourse in an ambulance at 21 years of age. And she used to see the German bombers coming over Liverpool, dropping the bombs, and she'd go in and try to save people at the, well, as the bomb, bombers went away. And uh, she, was, she was actually engaged to a fighter pilot, a Spitfire pilot, who was killed in action. And everybody always said, when I say that at a dinner, you know, Everybody said, oh, that's terrible. Well, it wasn't really up the Luftwaffe because I was in father's sack up in Monaghan at the time, you know, and it was only after the war that my parents met when her fiancé was killed in action. Uh, she, she moved over to Ireland on a holiday and met my dad. So I could have played for England. I mean, I could have been a complete softie. <laughs> now, in terms of the feeling back home, now, the way you're speaking is obviously you're deeply thrilled at the brand of rugby island are producing which is fairly unprecedented but yes it's all you're also erring on the side of caution that to me is reflective of someone who spent time in, in a city where maybe the direction of this course is people are getting a little bit not carried away but they're really in a unified way behind this team and have exceedingly high hopes comparatively ahead of next year's world cup Yes, I, I think that's true. I, you, you know, when you've played at, at a certain level, you, you realise what is real and what isn't real, you know. And uh, I mean, all of these teams that Ireland are going to be playing against in the World Cup, they're not standing still, you know. And, and the, the New Zealand All Blacks will be a different kettle of fish when it comes around to the World Cup, you know. I mean, they can just, they can just go back they will regroup, they will come back very strong and they'll be playing their own brand of rugby by the time the World Cup comes around. And, you know, all things will change for the World Cup. England are a different animal when it comes to a World Cup and so will France be. 
yeah, France's, France's big problem is that they have enough talent to win the World Cup. They have the strength to win the World Cup and they have the pack that can win the World Cup. But they're going to be under the singular pressure of playing at home. And they didn't react well the last time that happened, you know. So that's going to be very interesting as to how they're going to perform when the, when the pressure really comes on that they're playing at home and everybody expects them to win. You know, and anything less than winning won't be good enough for them. The other teams will will come strong and uh, yeah, the Springboks are going to be strong. We know that. We know New Zealand will be strong. We know France will be strong. And we know England are going to be strong. And then it's a matter of everybody else, what happens after that, you know. And you'll always have Wales turning up with a decent side. You know, you're, you're going to have Scotland improving uh, and, and then Ireland are going to have to jump into that with the added pressure of being, uh, at this moment, the number one team, which isn't real, realistic, really, but they, they're, they're playing really good stuff at the moment. But the one thing that we've got is a bit of confidence and players know that they're good players and they can play to that level. And it's nice to see. I mean, I played on Irish teams that went out and were almost apologetic about winning, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I can remember going to New Zealand in 1976 and Tom Grace turning around to me at breakfast. And he was captain of the team, turning around to me at breakfast in Wellington and saying about the All Blacks uh, quinner. He said, do you think we'll get out of here before they realise we're afraid of them? This is what you were up against. It was the attitude that we had, and I just love the attitude of the Irish players now, that you have a guy like Sexton who believes that we can win, that we can be the best, that we can take teams on. And it's down to guys like him and Ronan O'Gara and Brian O'Driscoll and Gordon Darcy and people like that who realised that we weren't second best, that we were actually able to take these teams on. And that has... Uh, evolved in the Irish game with the brilliant coaching that we have now to make us uh, a, a viable proposition. Mick, as we've got you here, can you just um, tell us a bit about the last match of that tour in 76? You stopped yeah. off in Fiji. And we did. The, the legend has it, the game was, number one, disrupted by an invasion of frogs. Frogs. And number two, you turned up there and they'd forgotten you were coming and they'd sent the first 15 to play Australia and they had to yeah. hurriedly put together a Fiji side to play you. So is there any truth in any of this or, or is this good after-dinner banter? Uh, no, it's, it's, it, there, there is a, a certain truth to it. Um, we arrived there and no, half the team had gone on tour, but the rest were still there. They knew we were coming, but they weren't uh, that concerned about what, what they were putting out against us. And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a jolly for us at the end of the tour. It was great crack. The fun was mighty uh, and we had a lovely time, you know. But uh, the, the fact was we played there after an absolute tsunami the day before and the mud was about six inches thick on the pitch and these frogs arrived in, hundreds of them arrived in jumping, 
jumping around the pitch when we were playing the match. It was really funny, you know. And they were the size, like they were the size of a football. Like they were big, big frogs, like, and they were jumping all over the place. And uh, it it was just one of those surreal situations uh, that you have in your lifetime. We, we weren't getting a cap for playing that day because they didn't give us full caps for playing against Argentina or Fiji at the time. So it, it wasn't a full cap. So it was treated as a sort of end of tour uh, fun game really you know and and it was a hard match now uh, they were physically quite tough but uh, it it was just a nice end to the tour and it was a nice place to go that was simply what it was do, do you think do you think Mick I, I, I was interested in what you said about um, the, the importance of a team feeling that they belong where they are it reminds me of the old Bill Beaumont story when he was taking an England club on the uh, an England team on the the two yearly march of death down the Cardiff Arms Park, and a, a fan coming up to bid and saying, "May the best team win," and he said, "I bloody hope not." It, it's that thing. Ireland were number one in the world what a couple of years ago. Some, at some point under Schmidt, they were number one in the world, and that really didn't look that didn't look serious. That looked a slightly odd thing without being um, without being damning towards that Ireland side. It didn't look real. But to no. me, this looks this looks a lot realer, if that's a word, yeah. which it isn't, yeah, yeah. Um, than it did two or three years ago. And I think perhaps partly this is down to the fact that Farrell isn't Joe Schmidt. He's something slightly different. You said earlier that he'd taken the best of Schmidt, but Schmidt, as I understood, it was a real micromanager and a process man and a yeah. systems man. Whereas Farrell, at least part of him, he can do that stuff, Andy. But... There's another part of him where he, he learned a lot of his coaching at the at, at, at the knee, if you like, of Brian Ashton, a former Irish Ireland coach, of course. Yeah, and Brian was in the polar opposite to Joe Schmidt. I think it's fair to say. Would you not? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. I, I think if, but I have to say, if we did not have Schmidt, we wouldn't have the players in the position they're in today. Mm -hmm. uh, Schmidt transformed Irish rugby without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, he led us to that win in, in Chicago against the All Blacks and in Dublin, and he got us into the winning mentality. You know, and a lot of this is winning mentality. You know, they, you know, uh, you know, they, they've turned the players' minds into into a positive uh, as to you know where they're going, and they go away now playing matches where they actually believe they can win. We we were almost apologetic in our time about winning. You know, oh sorry, we we didn't mean to beat you this time, but you know, and, and even though I played in a, an Ireland team that was quite successful, we won a five nations championship you know but we were we, we were you know just occasional uh, success stories you know whereas now the guys actually believe they're good enough they believe they're better than their opposite number in england they believe that they're better than their opposite number in new zealand you know and and they're uh, you know there's a, a talent uh, gr group there because we have very small numbers here. We 40,000 only, uh, um, you know, registered players in Ireland. Gaelic football and hurling are the big games here and soccer. You know, we're the fourth sport in line. So it, it is, it is 
an absolute joy to see us being successful at rugby because we're coming from nowhere, you know, and uh, we have these talented players who are playing really great stuff. And this, this group... Uh, have have done so much for the country in the sense that they have brought us into the international limelight uh, in a way over the last 20 years that has lifted the whole nation, you know, and we are seen now as, as one of the best teams in the world. And, and it, it's great. And it's not going to be there forever. It's not going to be there long term necessarily. But, but while it is, we're making hay while the sun shines, I can tell you. So tell me this, Mick, how long, you've talked about that winning mentality, which is in a sense new or, or, or pretty yeah. new to, to the Irish rugby psyche. How much of that survives if Sexton doesn't get to the World Cup? Well, I, I mean, I think it survives in the sense that we're, we're coming from a very small base. There, there are so few players, really, uh, compared to all of the other countries. I mean, you must, I, I think there are 700,000 or more um, registered players in England or more. Um, we're very small numbers and we, we're, we're punching way above our weight. Uh, and I think, uh, I think Sexton has done his thing for Ireland. There's no doubt about it. It doesn't matter how we do in the World Cup, in my opinion. I think he has brought us on to this level and has, has dragged us kicking and screaming uh, to the very top of the tree. And uh, I think he has to be lauded as one of the greatest uh, Irish sportsmen of all time. Uh, without a doubt. Now, while we've got you here, Mick, with yeah. this Sexton elephant in the room, obviously the, the pros are outweigh the cons. But yeah. we've spoken several times on this podcast about an overly heavy dependence on Sexton. Now, obviously, Irish fly half yourself, you played at a time where there were really five of you um, tussling out for the jersey. It was you, Ollie Campbell, Tony Ward, Paul Dean, Dara Coakley. That's right. Do you think that a situation like that is actually in a way, preferable to what Ireland have with Sexton now in that an injury happens to Sexton and Joey Carberry has to step up, as he semi-did, by the way, against France earlier in the Six Nations this year because he did play very, very well in that game. But you you obviously don't have the faith that he's necessarily the seasoned player he needs to be to take Ireland through a quarter-final against the All Blacks or France, a semi-final against potentially South Africa, a final against potentially England. Yeah, England got the jolly draw. Yeah, we really did. <laughs> as, as is our right, Mick. As is our right. <laughs> you know, you, you're you such a giant over there. And we have to do all the hard work to get to a final. Yeah, I, I, I think um, I think we're a little bit short uh, uh, in that area because we rely so much on Johnny uh, in the sense that he 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 it's his his way of running the game of of controlling the way we play of controlling the tactics of of uh, opening gaps for other people uh, absolutely brilliant. I'm not convinced, uh, uh, nor nor is uh, Stuart Lancaster, by the way, that that. Uh, um, that are our best uh, fly half uh, in incoming uh, would necessarily be Joey Carberry. I, I think Joey Carberry uh, is a full back, really, in, in the natural state. I think he's more of a full back than a fly half. I think the most talented guy we have is, is Harry Byrne. 
but he's injured all the time. So I really don't know how he's going to come through or uh, how he's going to be able to, to um, get up there uh, in that time. And uh, I know that they've been looking um uh, they've been looking at other players with regard to uh, that position. I, I, I just hope that Johnny doesn't get injured, that's all, because I think our chances would technically go out the window if he does. But he's been pretty hardy recently. I mean, he's played most of the games in the last 12 to 18 months. He, he does go in defensively very strong which is, I'm, I'm always telling him, I said, would you let your flankers do that tackling that you're doing, please, you know? And he just laughs, you know, uh, because he loves getting stuck in. That's the thing about Sexton, you know, and uh, I just don't think we can afford to lose him, you know? I don't think we can afford to lose him and, and get and, and advance. I think our best chance of advancing is having him there, you know? I think it's as simple as that, but I, I think it's a big ask to expect Ireland to make a World Cup final or semi-final. I think it's a big ask with the draw that they've got. They've got the draw from hell. You know, you couldn't have a worse draw. That's the fact of it. And uh, had we England's draw, I'd be saying we're on our way to the final, to be quite honest. Just one final question before we do your quick fire questions, actually, for you, Brendan. Do you remember, cast your eye back to episode two of the Rugby Paper podcast when we were previewing France versus Ireland and... It was me, you, Nick, and Tommy Allen. And we were two and two. We were down the middle in our predictions. It was two for Ireland, two for France. And we said that the difference between the two of them was a knife edge. It was absolutely minute. And do you think that difference has got even smaller? Do you think the gap has shrunk since that point? You'd have to say, that, you know, series winning New Zealand, you'd have to say it has. I mean, even on that occasion in Paris, I remember Ireland outscored them three tries to two. And I I thought Joey Carberry had a very good match that night. Um, I'm not quite as pessimistic about the prospect of Johnny getting injured. I mean, obviously you don't want him to get injured. Ireland are a greater team without him. But I've quite a bit of faith in Joey Carberry. But yeah, I think Ireland are, are, are getting closer. And you know, I think they did have a bit of a dip, but they've had it a bit earlier than normal. And now they are building again. Um, towards the World Cup. So, and the other thing is, you know, I, I've covered Ireland most World Cups and you, you look at the draws and they've had some favourable draws and completely blown it. And I, it would just be so ironic, but so sport, wouldn't it? If, as Mick says, they have got the draw from hell, but at the same time, that might relax them a bit. And then, you know, and it would only need one sensational quarterfinal win over France or New Zealand. And here we go, here we go, you know, on the way. So I'm, I'm not discounting their prospects for that either because Ireland are well capable of producing that big performance and it's about time they did and I, I you know it's still 15 months to go but I, I'd be pretty optimistic about something good from them. Okay well a note of optimism we'll look ahead to the World Cup in a bit more detail after Mick Quinn's random rugby 15. It's time for your 15 quickfire questions Mick. When you're ready we'll get going. Okay I'm ready to go. Okay nickname. Quinny. Best rugby memory? Beating England at Twickenham 1974, 26, 21. <laughs> <laughs> more, more gloating. Oh, most, embar- most embarrassing rugby memory? Oh, yeah. Like doing an autograph for a kid who thought I was Johnny Maloney. And I signed <laughs> to Brian. Best wishes, Johnny Maloney. Says, 
geez, Johnny said, thanks a million, but how do you play with your man Mick Quinney's shit? <laughs> <laughs> He's still trying to get my boot out of his ass. <laughs> pre-game tune. Oh, pre-game tune. Um, nothing really. I, I wasn't into listening to music before a match. Okay, post-game meal. Oh, steak. Oh, nice. steak. Couldn't get it before. From the IRFU, they wouldn't give you the steam off their piss. <laughs> for the jerseys, we swapped. I swapped with Alan Old and I had to pay 10 quid for the jersey. It's disgraceful. I've lost where I am now. Best, best player you've played against? Uh, without doubt, Gareth Edwards. Best player you've played with? Mike Gibson, Brendan but, Mullen, too. You're allowed to. Favourite player right now? Oh, Sexton by a mile. <coughs> Rugby idol? I, I suppose it had to be Gibson. Gibson just had everything. You know, he was lovely to watch and uh, he was a good guy as well. I liked him. I really liked him. Favourite stadium? Favourite stadium? Uh, the best pitch I ever played on was Murrayfield. Because it was very good back in those days. It was like it was like Wembley. It was beautiful. But best stadium was Lansdowne Road, the old one. Favorite gym exercise? <laughs> Rowing at this stage because I can't do anything else. <laughs> Rowing is difficult to be fair. Yeah. Occupation if rugby didn't exist. Well, I mean, I I, I had to work anyway because I was in the amateur exactly, era. Yeah. Worked through my life all the all the way. Trained like a professional, but but um, but but worked all my life. And what was your favourite job? Because you were involved in a supermarket chain as well, weren't you? As well as property management. Involved in H. William Supermarkets in Ireland, and then after that, I ro- I I uh, ran my own property management business, which was quite successful. You know, so and um, I, I I enjoyed. Uh, I've had a good life. I've had a good life. And which of those did you prefer? Would you be well? Yeah, property manager would be your number one. Well, it, it would have been my number one and, and was my longest lasting. The most enjoyable was was uh, looking after our paralysed players when I ran the IRFU Charitable Trust because yeah. we, we raised a lot of funds in that time. It was really so quite successful. Yeah. yeah, that's a great project. And superstitions? Superstitions really uh, was, it was you know, put, you, you put on your right sock before your left sock, all that sort of stuff before matches. And, uh, you know, everybody did those little intricacies uh, on their way through. And I, uh, I used to have a little bottle of holy water that I had from Lourdes. And I used to splash it on the lads in the dressing room. And myself and Moskeen, Moskeen used to splash it on all the Protestants in the dressing room. <laughs> There's like sulfuric acid going on those boys, I can tell you. <laughs> we had some good fun with that. You know? <laughs> Rugby law you would change? I, I would definitely uh, stop the clock as soon as the str- scrum is called and only put the clock back on when the scrum is finished. I can't stand that crap going on the whole time, wasting time with scrums that the last five minutes is taken up with, you know, putting scrums in and putting scrums out. I think it's the greatest waste of time has to be stopped. And the other thing I would change is, is the fact that uh, in these rolling malls from lineouts, that five or six players are offside in front of the ball. There's no way of stopping them. There's no legal way of stopping 
and it just leads to penalty after penalty near the goal line. Uh, I think it should be stopped. Okay, interesting. And lastly, best best thing about working in rugby? Oh, the best thing about being involved in rugby is just being involved in the game. It's the greatest uh, team sport in the world, without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, most enjoyable, uh, both socially and playing-wise. Uh, it, it is just such a wonderful game. And, and uh, if it hadn't been in my life, I think my life would have been terribly boring. Uh, it has given me everything in my life. and I, I still love the game just as much. Uh, I love the professional game as much as I love the amateur game, you know. And I'm still involved in a club that is totally amateur. Uh, and and uh, I love that side of the game. I love to see guys playing the game for the pure joy of playing the game. But I do like the I, I do like the pro game. I would and wonder what it would have been like to have been coached by somebody like Andy Farrell or, or Joe Schmidt. It would have been, you know, I mean, <laughs> when you think of the type of possession we got, you know, the ball was slapped back out of the line out and that. And, uh, it's just wonderful to see the amount of possession people get at, at uh, number 10 now compared to what we got. We got nothing. Great stuff. Well, that was an eclectic mix of answers, wasn't it? <laughs> Thank very, you very much for well, doing well, that, well, Nick. Nick, talking of your holy water, it will amuse you to learn, if you didn't know already, that Warren Gatland took instruction as a Catholic while he was um, coaching Galway. Yeah. When he moved on to Ireland uh, coaching, he, he took to sprinkling holy water on David Humphrey's boots. That's right. That's He needed to do that because he's a good prod. <laughs> well, he, Indeed, but, but um, unlike most All Black hookers, Warren was too scared to tell Humphreys that that's what he'd done. So, <laughs> yeah, he, he learned good things in Ireland, did, did uh, Warren. He learned well, good things. things. So it seems. Let's get back to the case of Ireland in the World Cup. There's just one more side that I want to look at, and that's I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit and say that one thing that Ireland haven't been tested by in terms of playing the All Blacks is physicality. Now, I wouldn't say this current cohort of All Blacks are the most physical side in the world. They certainly don't match the physicality of South Africa and France. Now, if we look at the case of Leinster, who may, many say is obviously sort of Ireland Mark II, their season's end is quite interesting because they came unstuck against La Rochelle and the Bulls. Obviously, they ended up without silverware on both counts where they were maybe expected or partly expected to at least come away with one of those two trophies. And... La Rochelle and Bulls, I suppose, are their own microcosms for France and South Africa. And maybe it's the, the physicality there that was an, an area in which Leinster maybe struggled. We will probably get answers to these doubts when we see Ireland versus South Africa in November and Ireland versus France in the Six Nations next year. But is this a concern and maybe one thing that is, as well as Ireland's draw from hell, hanging over Ireland's head a little bit? I think it is a worry. Um, I think it's clearly a worry uh, that, the, you know, Leinster have come unstuck against really big teams. And uh, But I think this is a problem for the game itself. You, we talked about the rules of the game. We talked about the the uh, dementia, the head injuries. We talked about all of that, the physical side, which is all caused from the big guy hitting the small guy and the big guy hitting the big guy and doing all of this. And uh, I, I think that uh, the sooner rugby uh, moves to a game that is fast and open, uh, you know, with less of the big bull uh, 
in the china shop you know, as against skilled players playing rugby in an open fashion that then you're always going to have that problem you know you're going to have that problem that big hard guy is stronger than the small hard guy and you won't have Ireland winning a, a major competition because simply they're not big enough you know and and they're not big enough in the front five to win uh, to win in you know Leinster have that problem every year when it comes down to the the final stages of the European Cup and and it also they and Ireland have the same problem when it comes around to the big teams they're going to play against in the in the World Cup etc I think um, I think that's where that's where we're going oh sorry lads sorry (laughs) (laughs) sorry Okay, dogs are dogs are becoming a regular sort of extra special guest on this podcast, so it's all good. The problem when the wife coming back and the dogs are all going berserk because she's coming back into the house. They love her. (laughs) They prefer (laughs) to you. They love her, and and listen to this. It's like the cat's chorus. All all stop as soon as she gets inside the door. Yeah. But but I think I think um, yeah I, I I would agree that Leinster have struggled and Ireland do struggle when they're taken on up front. Front five area is our weakness. It's our Achilles heel and uh, is an area that we're going to have a problem uh, when it comes down to the real make or break ties in World Cups and European games. And you know I I keep saying to the Leinster guys you need to bring in one more dogs uh, into the into the front five area so that you can actually stand up to the, the price you have to pay in Europe against French teams and, and top English teams where, where guys are just physically bigger than you. My, my problem with that is that I'd, I'd like to see the game moving away from just picking the big donkeys rather than the, the streamlined race. I'd like to see rugby players be, you know, in the long term. Yeah, but presuming that change obviously doesn't happen before 2023, how does Andy Fowles prep for these games for a game against South Africa or France, where up front, especially in that type five, they are obviously enormous? How does prep differ? Does it differ from prepping for New Zealand? Well, I think it, 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 it changes only in that they try to make sure that the possession they get is good possession. You know, we have constantly lost these games because there's guys stop throwing into the line out properly. They they get a couple of crooked throw-ins. They end up in trouble in one or two of the scrums. You know, um, they, they, I think they've got to get the ball in and out fast and get it, you know, move these big teams. Mm. You, you move the big donkeys around it. It was always the same in the game of rugby when you played against big teams. Move the fat guys around. And uh, they and they won't stay with it. They won't stay with the pace of it. And the other thing is that there are too many rests in the game of rugby. There are far too many rests for guys to get their breath back. And the donkeys do that uh, very easily because they're the there's they're, they're so long in taking a scrum to get down that they have plenty of time to get their breath back. They shouldn't have that amount of time. Things should be speeded up, and so and and the other thing is whether eight subs are 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 uh, conducive to the game of rugby. Why why allow eight fresh men to come on during the game? I think I think that needs to be looked at as well. I think Mick's got got the um, pointed his finger at it here. I mean, it is a worry for 
Ireland. But you almost got to, although we've sort of had a go at the All Blacks this week and last, you also have to take the leaf out of their book. Historically, very few All Black packs per se have been bigger and stronger than South African packs over the years and French packs. And yet they find a way of historically have always found a way of doing just enough to make their superiority elsewhere count. And, and I think that's what Ireland, I mean, against most teams, Ireland's pack is absolutely fine and adequate. Maybe against France and South Africa, they've got to find a different level. Or, as Mick says, they, they keep the, the ball um, live more often. They, they up the tempo. They don't hang around at line outs. They get the ball in quick. They don't faff around at scrums. They tap penalties. Just bring all that sort of mobility that Tardburn and Ryan have got. You know, that's their huge yeah. super strength and second road. So, but that takes a sort of leap of faith to really completely commit to that sort of game against the big beasts like France, uh, um, South Africa, and possibly England if they get their sort of full strength packed together. So um, it's an interesting tactical uh, conundrum for Farrell. It's the next step he's got to take, but Ireland have the tools to do it, I'm sure. Yeah, we have to do it, but it's it's another thing doing it over three or four games that are vital mm. in the World Cup. You know, I mean, to, to do it again and again is is physically draining on them. You know, and uh, it, it's the big conundrum whether we can do it. You know, over over a period of weeks in a World Cup. But um, they certainly have the ability to do it. I mean, we're not going to get any better than we are. We're, 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 you know, we we can we can tweak a few things here and there to try and make sure that we get decent possession. We can tweak a few things to make sure that we keep it alive and keep it fast. But the advantages are with the teams that are big and strong and defend. Um, and and it just it it galls me that. Uh, you know, referees side with the defensive team all the time, where they're clearly offside in midfield. They're they're on the brink and not behind the back foot at breakdowns, and uh, they're not looking after the team that's doing all the positive things in the game. And uh, I think you've got to side with the team that's going forward, that's playing the open game, that's keeping the ball alive, uh, not. Uh, siding with the side that's destructive and stopping the play and having guys lying in over the ball and slowing the ball coming back, which is the big problem Ireland are going to have, that teams are going to try and slow the possession uh, and stop them from getting the ball away quickly from the breakdown. Um, it's not in the in the best interests of the game to allow that to happen. And I think the referees have a lot to do with regard to keeping that uh, open game syndrome as part of our game to make it more interesting and keep the ball alive more. You know, I think I think Mick makes some 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 really good points with all of this. I'm, I'm particularly taken with the fact that this eight substitution thing is plays in, into exactly the kind of size advantaged rugby that Mick fears is going to carry on and on and on. I mean, if I could. I would have tactical substitutions at the game along with the jackal position. You obviously need injury substitutions. The problem with it is, again, as we were saying earlier, it's attitudinal. You know full well that people will cheat. People will invent injuries. And in today's climate, there is not an independent doctor on God's earth who's going to say, I'm sorry, mate, you look fine to me. Get back on there. Because exactly. if, that go, if that goes wrong, then you're in a world of strife. So. Yeah. It's all very, it's all very well saying let's cut right back on tactical injuries, but 
if people are going to cheat, there's no way around it. And it's 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 extremely difficult and a little bit depressing on that front. But if you allow teams to get tired, especially the bigger teams, you would have a whole different game of rugby on your hands and it would be a better one, I think. I, I would agree totally. I, I think that you, you made a very good point there. And, and uh, I, I, I just, you know, I hate to see the game dominated by the big teams. Uh, I, I just have a thing about that because, you know, we can't produce the big guys. We can't produce the number of big guys. If we had every uh, Gaelic footballer and hurler uh, in Ireland playing rugby, we, we'd have big guys. We'd have the guys, that, we'd have the numbers that they have in New Zealand to play our game, but we don't. So we've got to, we've got to think of different tactics to, to win games. And we found, uh, we found a, a, a a way of playing now that suits us and it suits our game and it suits the talent that's available to Ireland at the moment. But I mean that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you, you love to see the teams that play the good rugby winning, winning the tournament. And I, 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 you know, and I, I'd be beside any team. I, I would always side. I mean, when you see the Springboks winning the World Cup with uh, a, a game that's just drudgery. <laughs> I mean, it was just awful to watch. I, I mean, I got no joy out of watching them win the World Cup. Uh, you know, and and uh, they did it by just beating down everybody playing a defensive ugly game and was the same when they beat the Lions it was just drudgery it was just crap and I you know I can't watch that sort of uh, stuff you know and uh, I, I just think that that we're playing a lovely type of game now England are capable of playing that game you know, if they want to, if Eddie doesn't go down the route of just trying to beat everybody up again. Um, I, England have plenty of talent there. You've got a, a 10 who can run the ball very well. You know, you've got midfield backs that are good to watch. You've got loads of pace wide out. You know, I mean, why can't England play the same type of game Ireland are playing? You know, I mean, there's no reason why they shouldn't. Absolutely no reason. Could well end up with an England-Ireland World Cup final if... Yeah. If, if you manage to take it to the All Blacks and South Africa, and I guess the four of us on this podcast who wouldn't love to see that, I know who I'm backing, certainly. And England not wearing white. Don't get to the World Cup final, they're completely useless. <laughs> I mean, if they don't get to that World Cup final, I mean, I, I mean it's an absolute joke. How has, because I haven't looked at the maths of it, how has it ended up the draw was this way? Is it because France and Ireland were way down in the rankings and yeah. so they ended up? Yeah. It's partly that. It's sort of, crazy. Ridiculous stuff. It, 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 um, you know, it, well, you look back at it. Why did France get the World Cup? They shouldn't have got the World Cup. They had a World Cup within 20 years, you know, within the last 20 years. It was all down to money, you know. Yeah. They, we're, we're far more, we're far more uh, deserving of having a World Cup here. And we would have had a much more enjoyable World Cup in Ireland because you'd have everybody within 300 miles of each other. You'd have the buzz going around the country. You know, they said that we didn't have enough grounds. Well, we have enough Gaelic football grounds that are just as good as anything they have in France. You know, and we have an 80,000 seater stadium to have the final in, in Croke Park. And, you know, it, it, there was no reason... And, and and how France got around the the world just paying money to different countries to to make sure they got it was, was uh, an absolute disgrace, you know. Nick, Nick, you can't you can't have a World Cup in Ireland if you can't get sausages into the country. I'm sorry. Well, don't you worry about our sausages. 
our sausages are a lot better and, and our black and white pudding is a lot better than what you got, I tell you, because the stuff that's going to be coming into England now with Brexit, you can't even get in the ports anymore. <laughs> you want to queue up for two days to get down to Dover, for God's sake. <laughs> Nobody wants to know you anymore. Do you <laughs> <laughs> At least we'll make it to a World Cup final, though. <laughs> well, but you won't play in the European Cup anymore because isn't the European Cup for Europe? I mean, you're going to get dumped out of that as well. <laughs> you're not part of the world anymore. You're better than the rest of us. <laughs> you are such a assholes over there. You know that. Uh, Mick, Mick, talking about on a kilty pudding as we sort of were vaguely oh, uh, great. two minutes ago you're a newbridge man aren't you newbridge college which college i, mean, I, I was when a clone of kilty uh, i always think of christy moore now is he a yeah. contemporary of yours and was he a rugby player at newbridge he was a he was a rugby player christy was a rugby player and he was in sixth year when i was in second year in newbridge and a great character altogether. And some of the greatest songs have been written by Christy Moore, you know, fantastic songs. And uh, well worth a listen now if you listen in. Yeah, you know, he's a great man, great man. Yeah, great man. And uh, I love listening to Christy Moore. And uh, uh, he, he was a great Newbridge boy. Yeah, he was, he, he loved the college. And, uh, and uh, he, he still, I think he still goes back there, you know, quite a bit. Yeah, and listen to your banter. The, the other guy in Newbridge, I seem to remember, was Dave Allen, the comedian. And there's, a, there's Allen. A, a bit of Dave Allen about some of your patter. Yeah, but Dave Allen was, was uh, I think he was excused from the school at one stage. I think <laughs> Dave Allen got the heave home. <laughs> yeah. uh, he was a great character, Dave Allen. He was brilliant because he ran into trouble, of course, because he has the he had the Pope going along on a on a you know, one of these uh, seats with different gears on it and all that sort of stuff. He he took on the church before anybody took on the church. You know, it was really funny. And he used to tear strips off them. You know, he had he had nuns selling ice creams at, outside the churches and stuff. It was unbelievable. Like, he was such a funny guy. Loved Dave Allen. Yeah, loved him. But he was expelled. He was expelled. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what he did, but... The, you know, he, he was. Yeah. Oh dear. Well, there's a conspiracy for another day, huh? Yes. <laughs> Nick, I think we'll wrap up there before we berate England too too much. But thank you so much for coming on and slagging no off the palms. Anytime, anytime. You deserve it. Yeah, <laughs> we'll hopefully see you in the World Cup final in October 2023. Yeah. Good luck with retirement, the dogs, and everything that comes with it. The dogs have me demented here, you know. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm fed like the dogs uh, in the <laughs> room. <laughs> the missus has given up on me altogether. You know? <laughs> it explains all this pent up anger that you're taking out on us. Uh, but I, I, I know that I'm in a better place than all you English idiots. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh dear me. Yep. That's the problem. The empire has imploded. <laughs> I think it's still in the process of imploding. Who knows what will be in a year's time. <laughs> you gave back to the Chinese and you still won't give Ireland back to the Irish. I don't know. You guys, you're really in a bad way. I'll you tell know. you what, I'll tell you what, we're not going to give the British Virgin Islands back to the virgins either, Mick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. goodness me. Right. 
Thank you so much, Mick. Take care. God bless. Great talking to you. Really Mick. good fun. Good fun. Get yourself a copy of the Rugby Paper in stores on Sundays or get it delivered to your door through our digital subscription. We will see you next week for episode 25.